This podcast was recorded in September of 2021. <clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Take me one. Oh, there we go. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both going to do what he wanted to do. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We will be taking a stroll along the cast iron shore and peeling off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest, actually two musical guests on this episode, and they'll be discussing their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Now, the podcast website is romycast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com, romycast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. This is the sixth episode of Series 2. You can find the first five episodes of the series as well as all 15 episodes of the fabulous Series 1, ladies and gentlemen. Series 1, please do go back and enjoy it if you haven't heard them all. And also, very importantly, if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free? Most people don't. If you do, I really appreciate it. Any donation, much appreciated. And your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show, hosting, advertising. It's a labor of love for me. I don't make any money off of it. I do it because I like doing it. But if you enjoy the show, please do consider a donation to support the show and offset some of the costs of getting it up there for you to listen to. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you would like to donate. If you do, I'll give you a shout out. And along those lines, a big shout out to Jonathan Huber, who made a donation last week. Jonathan, thank you so much. Muchly appreciated. If you'd like to make a donation, I'll give you a shout out too. Just visit the website, romicast.com, for details on how to donate. It's uh, very simple. Also, if you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. Those kinds of things really do help move it up in the old uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen in their algorithm of recommended podcasts you can follow the podcast on twitter or instagram at the handle romanuk paul that's my name reversed romanuk paul Uh, that is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes you can also do it at the website romicast.com and i do respond to most comments and observations 
So my guests today are Ryan and Sam Weber. The Weber Brothers, a couple of gifted musicians, singers, songwriters who make their living the old-fashioned way, folks. They are working musicians. They play live music. That's how they make a living. So the last 18 months, two years have been really tough on them. Uh, They play venues all across Canada and the United States, as well as in Europe occasionally, from small clubs to big outdoor shows. And the thing they are renowned for is their leave it all out there approach to live shows committed dedicated those are words that are often used to describe their approach to live shows i have not yet had the pleasure of seeing them in concert in person i look forward to the occasion very much so from all i have heard and read their backstory is worthy of its very own podcast. A couple of kids from Baltimore, Maryland, they make their way into the orbit of the legendary Ronnie Hawkins, and they apprentice with the Hawk and some of the finest players in the world. And in fact, there is a documentary that was made on the Weber's musical journey. It's called Before We Arrive, and we'll talk about this during the podcast. They've also put out, by my count, a dozen albums, including a compilation record, a live record. Their latest studio record is called Choose Your Own Adventure. It's really good, and it's out now wherever you buy or stream your music. Their website is weberbrothers.com. Weber is spelt with one B. That's W-E-B-E-R, weberbrothers.com. Loads of information there on their discography, tour dates, other members of the band, videos. It's all there, weberbrothers.com. So the Weber Brothers, songwriters, rock and rollers, Beatles fans, Ryan and Sam, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. Absolutely. Been looking forward to it, actually. This is a a cool thing. Awesome thing you do, man. It's going to be great. Well, first thing I'd like to ask new guests is, uh, what is your first memory of the Beatles in your life? And why don't you go first, Sam? Uh, Let's see. Well, my first musical memory of any kind is uh, a distinct memory of when Roy Orbison died. So I was like more aware of the traveling Wilburys in those days. So I knew about George Harrison and all that. But then the first album I ever bought with my own money was Live at the BBC, the first one. And that just, you know, blew the roof off my little feeble brain. And from there, I just sort of built my collection. Then I had all the every Beatles album and I used to have them set up in chronological order. And every night I would just start with, please, please me, hit play on repeat all night as I slept the next night with the Beatles and just go through the whole catalog. And then when it was done, start again at the beginning. I did that for a good four years. It was a full on obsession, really, that's still going strong today. What about you, Ryan? Uh, I remember that uh, our parents had the um, that blue Beatles album, the collection. I forget what that what's that called? The blue one. It's a collection. Um, yeah, most people just call it the blue album. I think the official title was the Beatles, uh, sixty-seven to sixty-nine or seventy, something yeah, like, like that. Yeah, like the greatest hits type. Yeah, that yeah. one. I, I know that they had that album, and I would play it uh, quite a lot. 
And yeah, I just I just have memory of like sitting in front, right in front of the speakers and listening to that at a very young age, you know, like three, four or something like that. Um, and those songs were really getting in there even then. Now, before we tuck into the Beatles, uh, I'd like to ask all musicians this because we've been living in this... Uh, bizarre times with the pandemic, and I know you're working musicians, and working musicians like to get out and they like to play, which you haven't been able to do much of, but you have managed to record an album with uh, your old colleague, Timothy Bracken. Uh, that just yes. dropped in May. The record is called Choose Your Own Adventure, 13 tracks in your 13th album. How did mm-hmm. you do it? Uh, was it all, I'll email you some stuff I've worked on, and you'll email it back to me, and we work in the files, or did you get together? How did it come together entirely the first way yeah we couldn't get together with tim we just couldn't he's down in baltimore we're up in ontario and the border situation being what it was there just wasn't an opportunity to do that so it was just you know lay down an idea and send it away and just see what he would come up with and vice versa and it just sort of came together in that way really we didn't um it didn't start out with the idea of like, we're going to make an album. It was just like, all right, let's do a song and see how that goes. And then it was like, oh, that was a lot of fun. Let's do another one. And let's just keep doing these until this this thing lifts in a couple of months. Lo and behold, you know, here we are. We had enough for full album, 13 tracks, probably a couple more too. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some touring going on out there. I've seen some people booking dates. What about you guys? They're starting to trickle in, which is great. And I really hope that uh, momentum continues that way. Um, we're supposed to be going to Alberta in October, and I think this will be the fifth time it's been rescheduled. So I hope this is the, you know, the, the old saying, fifth time's the charm. <laughs> yeah, really hope to to get out there and just, you know, keep performing, really, because there's been a, a handful of shows this summer, and it's just, you know, so good to play for a live audience. There's no substitute for that for me. Every gig now is like a celebration. You know, not that we ever took it for granted before, but now we really don't take it for granted, you know. They're all great. Well, let's tuck into the Beatles here. And uh, the album you have chosen is Beatles for Sale. Uh, Why that one? What jumped out for you? Uh, I don't know exactly how how to put it, but this one is just, it's my favorite Beatles album for whatever reason. It's like if I had to pick one of their, all their amazing albums, it would be, this one, you know, it might have to do with uh, like the balance between their great songwriting and studio ability, but plus they're just uh, all the covers they do on it. You, you get to hear them as just a fantastic rock band playing the music they like the most. To me, um, I could have chosen any album and said that's that's the favorite. You know, it really could have been any, but uh, something about this one. You know, the thing about the Beatles that maybe some people um, forget is that as a live act, they really changed the world. You know, like they were blisteringly hot as a live band. And in this album, you still get that, that feeling of them when they were still playing live um, while starting that transition into kind of more uh, studio. So it's kind of a traditional album, but again, could have been any album. But I love this one. Yeah. 
Well, Beatles for Sale is the fourth album uh, that the Beatles released in their original catalog. It was recorded and released at the absolute height of Beatlemania. They were busy boys. Uh, they recorded and released two albums, A Hard Day's Night, which came out in July of 1964, and Beatles for Sale, which was released in the UK on December the 4th, 1964. So a busy year. That year, they also recorded three standalone singles or B-sides, Things We Said Today, which was the B-side to A Hard Day's Night, I Feel Fine, backed with She's a Woman, which was standalone single. There was also an EP during 1964 with four non-album tracks, Long Tall Sally, I Call Your Name, Slow Down, and Matchbox. The Beatles also played 131 shows during the year, during a couple of tours of the UK, a mini tour and a major tour of the USA and Canada, a residency in Paris, a European tour, and a tour that took in Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, during March and April of 64, they were both shooting the A Hard Day's Night movie around London and at Twickenham Film Studios, which is in sort of West London, and continuing to work on songs for the album at the same time. And then 64, of course, was a year that they broke America, first appearing on the Ed Sullivan Show on February the 9th. They played a few dates during that visit to the U.S., but then they came back later that year in August and September to play shows all over the U.S. and a couple in Canada, and that really saw them cement their status as massive touring superstars at that time. Uh, Recording for Beatles for Sale didn't take long. Basically, it was our stage show with some new songs says Paul McCartney. So the stage show McCartney is referring to, guys, isn't the one that they did during their U.S. tours when no one could hear them play. He's referring to when they were a working playing band as you referenced a few moments ago ryan they were crisscrossing the uk playing in clubs and playing extended sets in hamburg germany they'd play for hours that was their apprenticeship tell me about your apprenticeship as players around i'm led to believe the bars of baltimore maryland or or maybe in in a documentary we'll talk about later the u.s busking tour i mean where did you Mm -hmm. cut your teeth well, we uh, had the great fortune to be in Ronnie Hawkins' band. So, I mean, that's um, that's certainly an apprenticeship uh, that one would dream of that we actually got to have. You know, we got to have lessons firsthand from one of the truly the masters and the all-time greats. Um, but, yes, we played a lot around the Baltimore clubs. And then when we came up and joined Ronnie's band and came to Peterborough, Ontario, played a lot around here. And did about four or five nights a week at a bar here called the Red Dog uh, for about a year, uh, playing four or five nights a week, you know. So hopefully you get good in that time. You know, that really is, you know, that, what's that, Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hour tipping point? Yeah, yeah. With ours, I think it might be like in the 50,000 hour. (laughs) Just, yeah, just playing as much as possible. And that goes back to, to coming up under... Ronnie Hawkins, the Hawk, you know, his whole thing is practice all you can play live all you can. That's how you, you get good as a band, how you get tight. And it's funny, the John Lennon and Yoko Ono actually stayed at Ronnie's place in 1969. And Ronnie was telling us that when he was talking to John Lennon, Lennon said something to the effect of the only reason the Beatles were so good is because we played Hamburg for eight hours a night for months on end. We just played all the time. So, you know, that's just 
what you got to do if you want to really hone the craft of performance. And that's the same as the band did with Ronnie Ronnie Hawkins. You know, they played a lot like that. You know, I mean, it's like endless club, just playing, playing, playing every night. And something happens in there just gradually um, that I don't know that you get if you're just practicing at home. You know, it's there's something yeah. about that combination. It like, goes a long way. And look, it made the Beatles pretty good. Yeah. And looking at it as uh, as work, too. You know, it's fun. But, you know, just coming from the mindset of we got to work hard to make this happen goes goes a long way, I think. So uh, we'll talk more about uh, your relationship with Ronnie and, and some John Lennon stories as well. But uh, just to focus back in on this for a second before we dive into the album. So as was usually the case, just to put some context on it, uh, the album contained 14 tracks. That's what they did back then, eight of which were Lennon-McCartney tracks. And I think it was uh, you, Ryan, or Sam, you referenced earlier, the cover versions. There were six cover versions, all songs yeah. that they were used to playing live. Live, and we'll talk about yep. it later, but they were just able to bang them off in the recording session in one take. In the UK, the album had an, at the time, unprecedented 750,000 advance orders when it was released. It was an instant chart topper, replacing A Hard Day's Night as the number one album. So they had back-to-back number one, stayed there for seven straight weeks. It was in the UK charts for 46 weeks. And as per chartmasters.org, it is uh, the second lowest selling album of all the Beatles' original catalog. As of 2015, global physical sales of 5.7 million. Uh, the most recent streaming figures I found have the album being streamed over 56 million times. The most streamed track on the album. You want to take a guess? What do you think it is? Most streamed track in the record. I would probably say eight days a week. Yes. You are Boom. a winner. You are a you, go. Yeah. <laughs> 23 million streams. Uh, not even close. Uh, the mostly stream. Uh, such was the Beatles' work output and desire and or pressure to get more albums out there. On September 29th, 1964, just eight days after returning from their U.S. tour, where they played 32 shows in 33 days, they were back at EMI Studios to continue working on what was to become Beatles for Sale. They had to get it out for Christmas. They'd started work on some of the tracks back in August, but the bulk of the record was recorded between September 29th and October 26th and recorded around television appearances as well as some tour dates in the UK. Uh, The album came out for Christmas, uh, but essentially there were seven days spread out over the month that they spent recording the record. So on that note, let's take it out of the jacket, put it on the turntable, and side one, cut one on the vinyl, no reply. Here we go. This happened once before When I came to your door No reply They said it wasn't you But I saw you peep through Your window I saw the light I saw the light I know that you saw me As I looked up to see love this one i like how it starts out with vocals a vocal pickup there's no real intro it's just this happened once before you're just straight in there and the other thing that sort of stands out is the the dynamics of the song you know the verse the one part of the verse is you know quite uh sort of quiet and polite sounding but then when everything goes minor and gets louder it's just a super 
powerful song, and I just very much like it. This is a cool one uh, that on the anthology, I believe you get to hear kind of the progression of the tune, the song coming together. Because um, there's a few different versions on that anthology, them working it out, and what they eventually landed on. Um, man, it's a, it's a sweet opener, and it's it's a different kind of an opener from the albums before. This one has a different um, quality to it. It's a little bit—I don't know if it's darker or or what it is—but it's just a, it grabs you instantly. I don't know if it's darker. It's just like a, a serious, yeah. It's a very serious opening to an album. And when his voice comes in, like, you're all in, or I'm all in, you know what I mean? Yeah, I this think is, the the darkness is a, a thing that's just, it's there. You know, for one of the first times, it's the guy doesn't get the girl in no reply. It's a it's a sad song. So it's a strange way to to start your third album at the height of Beanlemania, but it works. Stellar opener. Yeah. John Lennon says, uh, that's my song. Uh, Dick James, the publisher, said, that's the first complete song you've written where it resolves itself. You know, with a complete story. It was my version of Silhouettes. I had that image of walking down the street and seeing her silhouetted in the window and not answering the phone. Although mm-hmm. he added, I never called a girl on the phone in my life because phones weren't a part of the English child's life. <laughs> but but Len- wow. Lennon liked the song. Uh, and I agree with you about the darkness. I love how it ends uh you can tell me what chord I, I think it's a c major chord but it's like there's no reply and there never will be uh, it's 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 very dark i love it Ooh, you took it to a real dark spot there <laughs> well i think the end chord yeah and that always stood out to me my whole life i think it's a a c9 i was like always oh, like what is that but then in later years that's the that's the magic chord and they're always good for that, you know, having a an ending to songs so you know when it's done and you can, you know, take a breather and gather yourself. No, no, sorry. Now, for you guys, for me, it's a hair stands up in the back of my neck kind of song when they at the end when you have Lennon with, you know, the no reply. But McCartney's got that really, you know, no reply. Oh, yeah. Same for you? Majorly. It's a like the whole song keeps growing and growing and growing, boom, until it hits that end chord. And they're both sort of singing in their full uh, gusto, full gusto for that ending. So definitely I'm with you on that. Yeah, there's there's quite a few vers or you know, examples of of that same thing on this album where it's just the two of them singing, but there's some distance between the parts, sort of like what you were saying when McCartney is up sort of the top of his range and Lennon sort of stays low. There's something that happens where it just, you know, it becomes a different sound when the two of them sing together. And as to your comment about the darkness about this, oh, sorry, that was mine. Uh, We had a VHS movie, if I remember, called The Complete Beatles. And when it talked about this album, it said, it talked about the, the cover and said the gloomy looks on their faces showed that maybe Beatlemania was starting to take a toll. And so if that was the case, you can kind of see where where this song fits that as the opener. Yeah, you know, they're showing that different side. You talked about the different versions. Uh, the the version on Anthology that you hear, it had a bit of a bossa nova beat to it. 
Um, and, and it's kind of interesting for me when I think of when the song was written, probably around spring of 64, because around that time, there was an album called Getz and Gilberto that came out, Stan Getz yeah. and the guitar. And, and that was, that was you know, a big hit, Girl from Ipanema, Ipanema was on it, and big hit in the UK. But that Bossa Nova thing was kind of big around then. So maybe they picked up an influence. I don't know. For sure. I, w- I would think so. The, there was like a Latin, there was like a Latin, uh, I don't know if it was a craze, but it, that Latin feel was very big around that time. And even a little bit back before that. And the Beatles were definitely uh, aware of that and influenced by that. You can hear that in a lot of their early stuff. There's a lot of those, like, Till There Was You, Ringo's beat on that. It kind of has that latin calypso feel. So, yeah. Yeah, it really breaks it up from just, you know, the straight rock or rockabilly style. It's just, you know, more more weapons in the arsenal, kind of. Uh, really dry snare drum sound. And uh, what was going on there was uh, the, the tea towel was placed over the snare. Uh, uh-huh. And that was a Beatles trick. A lot of people thought they hadn't done that till later, but they started doing that as early as, as 1964. And right. it, uh, the one piece I read, Norman Smith, who was the engineer, uh, instructed Ringo, uh, don't try not to hit the I'm not a drummer but I guess sometimes when you hit the snare you try to hit the uh, the metal the rim part as well. around yeah. yeah and he said don't hit the don't hit the rim just hit it in the middle and he had a tea towel on it and it sort of it sort of gave it that damp sound that uh, yeah trying to record it quieter so that then they could crank it up as loud as they want and they can it just gives you more room I think to to play and and boost it and manipulate the sound a little bit more if you slam it into the mic it's kind of already there but i mean that's a great sound too uh for certain songs but i read that same thing in jeff emmerich's book yeah do you, do they were you, trying to get ringo to hit it softer do you guys play this song at all we this, have this one i think we did yeah a number of years back easy to play hard to play easy and hard i'm not sure if that really suits it it's um it's just a great tune so you feel it and if you really feel it it comes out when you play it yeah, that was I a, think we nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a non-musician's question. There, easy, hard. I know it, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't constrict things like that. So we go on to cut two, and uh, you, you know, cut one. You had uh, maybe Lennon transitioning to his more introspective era with no reply, and certainly he does this in this song. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be Of all the love I have won or have lost There is one love I should never have crossed Again, there's no setup or intro whatsoever. Just, you know, the leader of the biggest band in the world saying, I'm a loser and I'm not what I appear to be. It's just the irony in that is is remarkable such a a dark sentiment really i think i think you're uh, bang on there with that introspective word um and he talked about that later on you know like that there was a, a shift where he wanted to start doing that or he just did start doing that and this is uh one of the maybe the earliest examples of him really just doing that and opening up and saying here it is let's get real uh some say it's in the wake of meeting bob dylan 
that that uh, that nudged oh, him a yeah. little bit more in that direction. Definitely. Uh, uh, Lennon says, this is a quote from John Lennon, uh, I'm a loser is me and my Dylan period because the word clown is in it. I objected to the word clown because that was always artsy fartsy, but Dylan had used it. So I thought it was all right. And it rhymed with whatever <laughs> I was doing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> he said Dylan that. did it, so it's cool. Yeah. There's some validation. Yeah. Um, they uh, the recording was pretty straightforward. Took eight takes, no overdubs. And uh, the other guy who Lennon was hanging out with a lot at the time was Eric Burden of the Animals, uh, who'd recorded a couple of Dylan songs. Of course, uh, you know, most notably House of the Rising Sun. Uh, and he was also hanging out with Mick Jagger, who was a big Dylan fan. So clearly, I mean. Dylan was the guy then for songwriters, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, still is. Still is to today. Uh, he yeah. keeps climbing. But uh, yeah, I think everybody was a, a huge fan of Dylan or at least uh, was a fan of this, his songs. Like, you couldn't not be, I don't think, in that time. He's another one uh, like the Beatles and like Elvis and like some others who really just changed the world when he, when he came out. You know, So, I mean, everybody's going to feel his influence. Just as he felt the Beatles' influence too, you know. Now, Ryan, it features uh, you play bass, um, mm-hmm. upright, and what I'll call regular bass, uh, but features that great walking bass line from McCartney. And I'm, you know, I'm a lose, boom, 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 boom. It sort yeah. of goes along like that. Uh, McCartney playing it on his Hofner, and I know that you also have a Hofner bass. Uh, Two of them. Inspired by McCartney, and what do they like to play compared to a standard, say, Rickenbacker bass? I, I love them. I really do. Like, when I got my first one and just started playing, I was like, that's that's the sound I've been after. You know, and of course, you hear it on Beatles stuff, and you, and you know what it sounds like when he plays it, but when I got it, just the feel of it, the way it cuts through a mix, like, um, just the, the possibilities you get with it. It's, it's a very unique bass you know like it the sound of it kind of cuts through in a way that is unique to it and it probably is the closest bass kind of to an upright bass sound as well it's very natural sounding um and as far as paul's walking stuff like man always i thought his walking all of his lines but his walking stuff even from very early on is just uh it's mind-blowing great He just knows how to play the right thing. You know what I mean? And when he walks, he really sends it where it's gone. He walks that dog. Well, he, he's celebrated as one of the, uh, the John Lennon, among others, said, you know, Paul McCartney is the most melodic bass, part, bass player I've ever heard. So to a non-musician, me and many of the people listening, explain what it means to be a melodic bass player. Uh, well, I think what they're talking about there is uh, a guy who is, <laughs> some would say, just playing too much. But I never agreed with that. Uh just somebody who's not uh, just holding down the doom, 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 you know, which is very important. But he's a guy that not only does that, but also it plays around, plays a lot of interesting stuff up high, uh, where the bass actually kind of acts as a lead as well, another another lead instrument in a way that when it uh, when it needs to come up and and take the focus, it does. And it's also, uh, I think, McCartney's bass style is 
such a great understanding of how to get good tone out of an instrument because without a great sound it really doesn't matter what you play so just understanding that that sound aspect is you know whenever you hear any of the notable bass lines of McCartney it's like it just sounds so great that paired with the the melodic approach is just amazing Two very John Lennon sort of confessional Dylan-esque songs to kick off the album. Now, you referred to him earlier, but one of your musical heroes, uh, the great legend Ronnie Hawkins, uh, playing his band. And that's a story in and of itself. And one that I will tell you, dear listener, I strongly urge you to seek out. There's a fantastic music documentary called Before We Arrive, The Story of the Weber Brothers. Uh, I found it on Vimeo, but it is really, really good. It's about the guys, but it's it's about trying to make it in the music biz. Uh, that's what I got out of it. It tells the story of Ryan and Sam and their band and their amazing lives in music. But regarding Ronnie Hawkins and John Lennon, which you referred mm-hmm. to yes. earlier, now, Lennon and Yoko famously visited Ronnie's country home in Streetsville, Ontario in December of 69, stayed with Ronnie for a couple of weeks, apparently. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but did he ever talk about it? <laughs> what stories did he tell? Sure. Well, you know, whenever he asks, a little bit, he's a little bit, he's happy to talk about it. <laughs> like there's a story of uh, evidently when they went to see Pierre Trudeau, they all went to the roof of the Parliament Building and smoked a joint together. That's just one of them. But you know, I remember um, hearing John Lennon talk about that. That may just be hearsay. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, it that is. Could I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. John Lennon was talking about that visit, and Ronnie in particular, and he said he's one of the only people I've ever met that didn't try to grease me. Not exactly sure what that meant, but I think it's like Ronnie's the kind of guy. It's he'll rarely ask anybody for anything, just that kind of thing. And you know, I think that sort of impressed John Lennon, who probably had a lot of people asking him for for everything. Well, I think too something that uh, both because because Dylan called Ronnie his idol, and Lennon called him Sir Ronnie, and I think both those guys were sort of uh, awestruck with Ronnie because he's one guy that uh, you know I'm sure both Dylan and Lennon are used to being like if they walk in a room everybody's just glued to them watching you know Ronnie says often if if Dylan pulled out a smoke like fifty lighters went up you know what I mean. But Ronnie is like the one guy that if he came in the room and those guys were there, he would become the center of attention. He just would. And so I think that was actually kind of comforting to these guys. And of course, Ronnie's hilarious and he's great and and a lovable guy. But as far as stories go with that, I know he said, Ronnie said, when Lennon came and stayed there, he heard from relatives he hadn't heard from ever in his life. Or all these long lost friends showed up. Yeah, we're just passing by your place. You mind if we stop in? Just because John and Yoko were there and it had made the news. Well, that kind of thing. And and Ronnie also said that they ran like, they ran like, because uh, this was early days of phones and stuff. And I guess Lennon and Yoko were on the phone so much that they ran like, I don't know how many wires it was, but like tons of wires. They They installed like 10 phones in Ronnie's house so that they, while they were there for that week, and so Ronnie said it was it was beautiful. Do, do you know? Did, did he play with them at all? I don't know that they played. I'm sure they they played and and 
played each other records and stuff, I think. But I don't know if they, they jammed, but they very well could have. Yeah, it's, there's no record of that. But there's, um, Ronnie said one time that back in 65, 66, he actually used to perform I'm a Loser. He would sing it. Yeah. I've never heard that version, never heard him sing it since, but that's a cool thought. That'd be a great version. Love to hear that. Uh, so we'll go on to the next cut on side one after a couple of Lennon songs. Uh, this was the first song to be recorded for Beatles for Sale. Babies in Black, completed in a single session on the 11th of August, 1964. What do you think about this one? Oh, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? of him and so she dresses in black and though he'll never come back she's dressed in black this is top five Beatles songs for me this one just just gets me it really does I think it comes back to what we were mentioning before about that Lennon and McCartney magic that happens when those two voices become one and especially just the uh, I guess when they recorded it sang into the same mic at the same time. And they did that live too. That was a big live show moment. It's the one where those two converge on one mic and the crowd screams with joy. As we're doing now. As we're doing now. Yeah, you can't see that, whoever's listening to this, but we decided to use just one mic to recreate that magic. And it it's it look I'm rubbing my eyes. I could be looking at a Beatles concert. There's the the mic in the middle <laughs> and it. the two guys right in close mic. Yeah. Uh, some some amazing live versions of this song um, that they that they would play. I think about the Beatles, uh, especially in all this early stuff. Really, any of it. But what really blows me away in the, in the early stuff is what all four of them are doing. They're all four playing like an essential part to making the song so like Ringo's drums in this are like man they grab you George's guitar as well It's just a, it's a complete band playing on every song. And that really comes through in this. And like, like you were saying, their voices on top of it, John and Paul's voices. Oh, how long will it take till she sees the mistake she has made? Here, what can I do? Baby's in black and I'm feeling blue. Tell me, oh, what can I do? It's a hot track. Well, yeah, just those two guys together, very different voice types, even when they speak or sing. But when it comes together, it just creates this amazing balance that just doesn't sound like like anything else, really. And yet, now I hadn't even thought of this, but for the third track and another kind of dark, there are babies in black. It's another one, third sad one in a row third dark one yeah yeah i mean that changes with the next one that we'll get to in a sec but you're absolutely right it's it, you know starts off in a very it's not exactly your yeah 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 beatles is it uh, to, yeah a little to, bit more of a somber tone yeah. you know if you read into it this way it's like you know a guy wants a girl who just 
her boyfriend had died. That's why she's wearing black. But the guy still wants the girl. That's like, that's dark. That's a dark concept. Is that what the concept is? Well, if you think about it that way, babies in black, why would you wear black? Maybe she's just doing a Johnny Cash. Maybe. That's just another way of interpreting it. <laughs> well, 25 years later in black, she's she's at the, the high end of style, right? Remember when that <laughs> well, there you go. was wearing black? At any time. <laughs> uh, to your like point, um, an even collaboration between Lennon and McCartney, uh, written in a hotel room while the Beatles were on tour in the summer of 64. Uh, McCartney says this, Babies in Black we did because we like waltz time. We used to do, if you got to make a fool of somebody a cool three four blues thing uh and other bands would notice that and say shit man you're doing something in three four so we got known for that and i think also john and i wanted to do something bluesy a bit darker more grown up rather than just straight pop it was more babies in black as in mourning our favorite color was black as well paul mccartney said that in the anthology and they love playing the song live uh it was a staple of their live set right up until their last show at candle stick park in san francisco so yeah uh they yeah. liked it too no they wild like paul said the morning in morning exactly yeah and yeah just remarkable that it it stayed in their set list that speaks to how powerful of a song it was live and just that moment on stage is it's great now, the next song is a cover of one of the great rock and roll songs by one of the great rock and roll performers, Chuck Berry. And before we talk about that song, can you tell me about the time you shared a stage with Chuck at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And I, I have it as 2012. What was that like? Right. Surely. Uh, what was it like? It was amazing. Like we'd been trying to chase him down and meet him for a number of years before that. We actually did play at him one time beside a dumpster in St. Louis, uh, which is a story all on its own. <laughs> oh, that's got to be a story. <laughs> Outback of his gig. We were just like short version. waiting there. Yeah. We, this was our infamous busking tour. We busked all the way across the U.S. And one of the main goals, aside from meeting Robbie Robertson, was finding and meeting Chuck Berry. And we found this venue that he played every month, I think, uh, in St. Louis. And we were there. We would you know, busking around. We met a guy who told us where he parked. And so that day when he was playing, like we went back in this back alley and we sat next to this dumpster with all of our gear, my upright bass and with his acoustic, uh, our piano player, Cookie, who was playing melodic at the time, he was like hidden in a bush with with a video camera in case something happened. And we were there like five hours early just in case he gets hurt. We're just hanging at this dumpster. Finally, about, you know, five hours later, we see this Cadillac pull up slow and park and as it pulls in it's like oh maybelline maybelline <laughs> and we just played chuck tunes for you know about an hour at him because he was just waited in his car but he did crack the window and listen so i think he liked it he didn't tell us to stop <laughs> anyway the time we actually did get to um share the stage with him was at the rock and roll hall of fame uh at an honor show they were doing for him like the rock and roll hall of fame honors chuck berry and so many legendary people on it. And Ronnie got contacted to to perform at this. And so we went with him. And we did Roll Over Beethoven and 40 Days, which is a Chuck tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, you know, sort of at the big finale. The finale moment. Uh, we're all on there. And here comes Chuck out in between us. But like huge names there. Lemmy from Motorhead was there. Merle Haggard was there. 
uh, Rick Derringer, Steve Jordan on drums, just everywhere you look was a, a different hero. And the song we all played together was rock and roll music. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah it was. It was. And one thing I do remember is that Chuck's guitar uh, during that finale, and there was like 30 musicians, but Chuck's guitar uh, buried them all in volume. It like was he the had loudest that thing. thing. Like, wow! Whenever he hit it, it was true, <laughs> true punk, true punk moment. And just playing whatever is a beautiful thing. What a song. I mean, covered by so many. Uh, the original by Barry it reached uh, number eight on the U.S. Billboard charts in 1957. It was part of the Beatles stage act going back to their Hamburg days right through their final tour in, in 66. It's been recorded by Bill Haley and the Comets, the Beatles, Beach Boys, REO Speedwagon, Mental as Anything, Humble Pie, Manic Street Preachers. I mean, the list is, is very long. Yeah. Um, Couple of cool things about it, though. About the well, first of all, what do you think of this version, the Beatles' version versus Chuck's version? Well, I would say this this sort of um, harkens back to what I was saying before about them as uh, interpreters of songs and the cover versions that they did and what they did with them. Always, you know, okay, that's the Beatles doing it, not only because of the, the singing, but how they would do it and a lot of the early Elvis tunes they would do like they really gave it their own thing which like drive it and kind of mm -hmm. make it more of a straight beat than a swing sort of uh, and so really on Chuck's stuff which I know they loved to the max like they rock it up a little bit uh, I don't know if it's volume they just change it up a bit uh, as such great interpreters of music and Lennon's vocal when the Beatles do it, is really, um, it's really something. It really is. It's a, a bit like Twist and Shout, you know, like what he brings to the vocal. I don't know if it's, you can really describe it. It's, it's a, that sort of edge. Intensity to it. Intensity, edge. yeah. Like he takes it right to the, right to the, right to the edge. And just, you know, the, the respect that they have when they play these covers, I can, I can hear it coming through. Like they really took the time to, to learn these songs properly and to give them proper homage. And you can just sort of hear the joy that they feel just playing the music that they loved when they were kids. It's just remarkable. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll music. Any old way you choose it. It's got a backbeat, you can't lose it. Any old time you use it. Gotta be rock and roll music. just tell you a couple of things about it which just to me makes it even more remarkable it was recorded on sunday october 18th and 64 so they're out doing uk tour dates and they were popping into the studio on days off i'm using air quotes uh to to finish up material for this album so this is a great story that is testament to how tight the beatles were at that time as a live band to try to get beatles for sale recorded and out for christmas they were short on material uh uh, they'd been just a little busy in 1964, as we talked about earlier. So, a on, bit. yeah, on on this day, time's running out, and they're lacking original songs. So they rattled off four cover versions, the last three in a row, 
at the end of a nine-hour recording day. The three in a row at the end of the day were Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Carl Perkins cover, one take, Mm -hmm. Rock and Roll Music, Chuck Berry, one take, and Words Mm -hmm. of Love, uh, that was their only recorded Buddy Holly cover, three takes. But Rock and Roll Music, one complete take, George Martin hopped in on piano, and Lennon's vocal after eight hours in the studio. Mm. That that just blows me away. It's kind of, it also reminds me of the Twist and Shout story where they save Twist and Shout sort of till the end to get that quality in his voice where you've been working it all day. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of like a, a boxer going in for that last round to get the win. You know, like you got to pull something up uh, from deep within yourself. And uh, he definitely does on on this vocal. You know, like this version is is the one that people know, I think, that a lot of people know of the song. And a lot of it is that delivery of it. Yeah. I mean, just that stamina is crazy. And just night after night doing a different project. And songs like rock and roll music, they don't sound uh, easy to sing at all. You know, he's up there. He's really pushing it. But another thing about the Beatles, too, they had, you know, four different singers, too. So that was a big part of it. It's not like it was just one guy being the lead singer. So they sort of, you know, helped each other out from a live standpoint. Like, for instance, if you hear any live, um, there's a George Harrison tour from the 70s on a live album where he's singing lead on all of it. And by the end, his throat's just gone. Same thing with the Wings tour in 76. By the end, McCartney's throat is gone. But with the Beatles, you know, they all took a turn and carried the load when they had to. Now, everybody loves a good cover version uh, as it pertains to the Beatles. Now, I found one of you guys, along with uh, Timothy Bracken and uh, and Shy Peer, Shy Cookie Peer, uh, you were covering George Harrison's Fish on the Sand. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah. Now, how did that, un- an unusual choice on the surface, tell me about it. Great tune. We, we love the tune. See you in the love. See you in the moon above. But I want to know that you're not lost inside of me. We all love uh, Beatles music and even the solo stuff. And th- that's another one that was done during this last year, the pandemic. Uh, that one actually might have been the one that sort of kicked off the uh, idea of doing an album that way. Yeah. Because um, everybody was sort of doing those split screen videos at the time when, when the pandemic started. And we thought, okay, well, let's let's do one of those and, and let's try and do it upright and get it to sound really good. And that tune just came to mind. Like we had done a, a George Harrison tribute show. I don't know, 15, 16 years ago or something. That one was one of the ones in the set. And we always loved doing it and hadn't done it kind of for all that time. So it was like, oh, let's revisit that. It's either that or just sit inside and stare at the ceiling all day. Yeah, that was spring 2019. So there wasn't anything else to do. So it's like, what the hell? Let's 
let's do this. Well, it it, it's great uh, fun. I, I would encourage you, uh, dear listener, to look for it. You can uh, find it on YouTube, uh, and it's a a it's a nice version of the song, but a fun video as well. So it's uh, Harrison's fish in the sand. But listening to your new record, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you're influenced by everybody as as songwriters, but. And tell me if I'm in the wrong track on this, but th- that song, uh, We Were Let Down, uh, that to me would not be at all out of place on a George Harrison album. I know Timothy Bracken sings the, the lead vocal on it, but that has a real Harrison feel. Did it feel like that when you were writing it? Sure. I mean, um, I, I think just what you listen to, and if you listen to something a lot, whatever it be, uh, that comes into what you do, whether it's conscious or not. It just becomes like a part of you. And we have listened to so much George and so much uh, Beatles that I think that's going to come through. And sometimes, you know, you, you start getting a song and then be like, ah, some slide would be nice in there. Yeah. Some, some of that George slide sound would be nice. Um, so, yeah, I can, I can hear what you're talking about for sure. Though it's completely original and it's all its own. <laughs> it is. We, we were let down, and it's on uh, It's on the new record. Uh, <laughs> next track on side one, All Follow the Sun. One day you'll look to see I've gone For tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun I always get a, a sense of relief when I hear this song start. Like in the context of the album so far, started out with three dark, sad songs, then the face melter, which is rock and roll music. After that, it's like bump, 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 and you're like, "Whoa, whoa!" Here, then, yeah. Dee, doo, dee, doo, dee, doo, dee, doo. It's like okay, it's the cuddle. Everything's okay. Yeah, it's like cuddling. It's really, really nice. It's a beautiful tune. I know this is one that, uh, and I think, I think. Um, I read somewhere that that uh, Lennon could be uh, a little sparse in his compliments to McCartney about his tunes and stuff, or just like saying that something like that. And I, I've read somewhere that this was one that even Lennon said, "That's a nice one," you know, and said it to him. It was written by McCartney on his own, uh, 1959, at the family home in Liverpool. And McCartney says this about it: "I wrote that in my front parlor." At Forthland Road. I was about 16. I'll Follow the Sun was one of those very early ones. I seem to remember writing it just after I'd had the flu and I had that cigarette. I smoked when I was 16. Uh, the cigarette that's sort of the uh, the cotton wool one. You don't smoke while you're ill, but after you get better, you have a cigarette and it's terrible. It tastes like cotton wool. Horrible. <laughs> I remember standing in the front parlor with my guitar, looking out through the lace curtains of the window and writing that song. Wow, he's quite young. Yeah, 16. Unreal. Dude. Yep, 16. Uh, worked on it on that same October the 18th day uh, where they recorded all the covers. Uh, they worked on this right after they'd worked on I Feel Fine. So they're wow. uh, jumping all That's over a good the day. That's Yeah, a good not day. a bad day. Now, speaking of A Hard Day's Night, um, which uh, sort of was around this period, I referenced uh, an earlier documentary that you guys were the subject of back in 2014 called Before We Arrived, The Story of the Weber Brothers. How did that all come about, A? Uh, I just watched it last night. And B, were you happy with the end result? I thought I looked great in it. 
<laughs> I thought Sam looked great in it too. I think it turned out turned out pretty well, and it was a an interesting period to have documented like that. And our good friend Michael Bates, who used to act as our manager for a time, and we live with him here in Peterborough, but he always had his video camera with him and recorded a bunch of our live shows, a bunch of different stuff. Like when we were first came to town, he filmed everything, everything for like a few years, like going to the grocery store, like going to Tim Hortons. Like he just was filming all the time, Uh, which at the time you were kind of like, put the camera down, put the camera down, you know, like as you might be. But when they came around to doing this documentary, it was great to have all that footage that Rob Viscardis, who, who made the film was able to, go through all that stuff and had a bunch to, to look through and use. Uh, so that's how that sort of started to come about. And I guess, I don't know, um, Rob kind of had heard about our, our, our story um, and wanted to make this film. And we were like, yeah, let's make a movie. I, I thought it was great. It was a great watch. Like I thought it was really, really good. And again, it's he called, did a great job. Yeah, I, I mean, it was. It was. I mean, you could even. You wouldn't even necessarily have to know the Weber brothers to find it compelling viewing because it's 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 two guys, uh, two characters who we can all identify with who were trying to make it. Um, mm-hmm. Second last song on side one, Mr. Moonlight. I'm going to jump out here and then I'll let the musicians go. But for me, possibly the worst song in the entire Beatles recording output. Oh, really? Whoa, Whoa man, you're going to have to leave. Whoa, I can't look here. at you. Turn off your film. <laughs> I can't look at you for a minute. Whoa. <laughs> but I appreciate your honesty. It's a an unusual one, definitely. It sort of stands on its own, I think. But again, with the the Lennon singing, starts out. There's nothing backing him. And what other songs that you can think of start out with the vocal climax of the song is the first thing you hear. You know, this big singing acrobatic moment of just him. Then the song starts. It's just incredible piece of singing and a difficult one too i think it's a song that's sort of in that style like uh, maybe the style of say a taste of honey from please please me um or till there was you kind of that i don't know if it's a show tune style if that's what you would call this one but um i don't know i i, I like the style i've always uh, loved the tune this is one that we played before too um so basically uh you're wrong in your statement that's all. That's all. Long story short. And I've been wrong uh, many times. And I'm just kidding, though. I'd like to talk more about that. What about it doesn't uh, do it for you? Uh, you know what it is? It's the the cheesy, I think it's a Hammond organ. That organ. Mm. Uh, I thought maybe. It, it just really cheeses it up. I mean, uh, for me, but the, no arguing uh, at all. Uh, not that uh, it would matter what I thought, but the, I mean, the vocal performance, I mean, man, uh, w- which one of you guys belts out that opening high note? 
That one Sam did. I, I think, think I tried to, but man, that is... Oh, he succeeded. That's up there, just in a crazy way. I can but, see what you mean, though. I mean, that organ maybe sounds like it comes out of nowhere. Maybe a little bit. Well, that's a common thing, though, too. Um, our keyboard player for many years, Shy Peer, Shy Cookie Peer, the Farfisa organ. He calls that the Farchiza organ. Just because, you know, for certain people, it just takes it into that roller rink shopping mall kind of feel. And it's kind of distasteful to, to certain people. And I tell those people, shh. <laughs> well, it, it is a cover. Uh, the original was a B-side of an R&B hit, Dr. Feelgood, by Dr. Feelgood and the Interns. Mr. Moonlight was written by yeah. a guy named Roy Lee Johnson. And my investigations show that he is still alive. From uh, what yeah. I can do, the ripe old age of 83. He wrote this song when he was in high school. And the money that he has made by the Beatles covering it uh, financed a, a pretty long career. The last album he released was When a Guitar Plays the Blues in 1998, but still alive and made a lot of money. Uh, Amazing. Wow. So, yeah, it's not kind of a doo-wop. A doo-wop kind of tune. I just had an idea. Why don't the three of us all sing that intro together? Yeah. <laughs> and see how that sounds. You first. Think that'd be cool. No, we'll all go at the same time. No, I can't do it. You guys want to do it? Mr. Moonlight. Hey. That's pretty damn good. Now you. Ball. Oh. Not going, Sam? You going? I can't get up Mr. there. Yeah. Wow. Right. Hey. Applause well, I for that. I thought that would have been fun, listeners, but uh, nobody joined it. <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that moment. I'd, I'd, I mean, I'd be done. Uh, I'd have to croak the rest of the uh, the rest of the interview. Uh, last song on side one, another throat shredder, uh, also from the October the 18th session, Kansas City. Hey, hey, hey. McCartney singing Little Richard, it just, it works. Like there was Long Tall Sally and a number of other ones, I'm sure, but it just, he could sing those songs so well, just incredibly. Oh yeah, so many of them on BBC too, Lucille, they do, and um, Clarabella. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was just natural, a natural fit for him. And I think they said that, uh, maybe I read that somewhere that, with the cover tunes that they did uh, of all the guys that they really loved, you know, Buddy Holly, Elvis, Carl Perkins, Little Richard, like certain ones of them would take that. So McCartney would do the Little Richards. Uh, John would do like, like the Elvis. So and the yeah. Chuck and the Chuck, uh, George would kind of do the Perkins, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, this is a, this is an awesome track. It's an awesome song when Little Richard does it. And the Beatles, again, this is that, the way they could interpret tunes. Yeah. Uh, they bring their spin to it, and it's great. You know, it's more yeah. like guitar-led than piano-led. Piano-led and horn-led. Exactly, know. yeah. And it's like, whenever they start playing a straight rock tune, it's it's a machine. The band is a rock and roll machine. It just, 
the feel is right. Everything is working together. It's like it's got a pulse to it that you can feel other places than your ears. Just yeah, love it straight away. That's not, that's well put. They had it. That's that live. That's the Beatles as a live group. Like it right away. You feel and it's there's certain acts like that that change the world with their performance because it had something that was just so it. You know, Elvis had that, and Beatles definitely had that when they came out. Yeah, undeniable energy and and presence and charisma when they started playing just as a you know just a good little four-piece band it's all it was but just so much more than that in the end is what comes off stage recorded in one single take uh it's a medley of two songs lieber stoller's kansas city and little richard's hey 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 which was a b-side to uh, good golly miss molly so little richard did a cover version of kansas city and then when he was in concert he'd do it as a medley with his own song hey 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 Uh, yeah the, the beatles saw little richard perform the medley in concert and then they adopted it for their own set in 1962 they for performed it uh, twice with him in England in October that year and became friends with him. McCartney says this, uh, I could do Little Richard's voice, which is a wild horse screaming thing. It's like an out-of-body experience. You have to leave your current sensibilities and go about a foot above your head to sing it. You have to actually go outside of yourself. It's a funny little trick, and when you find it, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, he nailed it. You guys, are you want to sing this one now? <laughs> <laughs> Too high, man. Yeah, we'll just. Yeah. I, I'm still. Uh, I'm massively impressed with you. Uh, just, just sitting there, cold, hitting the the high note for Mister Moonlight. That's well, I, t- I tell you though, I think uh, what he's talking about there, uh, I understand because if, or I understand in a way because singing the, the, the little Richard tunes like that, uh, if you sing it just with the all with uh, throat like. That will shred you after a while. It you doesn't have work. to. Yeah, there is some sort of other thing that has to happen where it doesn't shred the throat. Really, I think that's what McCartney's getting at there, and he was—he definitely um, nailed it. He found it. Well, one cool little bit of trivia, it was part of their live act back in the Cavern days, uh, but then they pretty much dropped it from their live set by about 1963. But uh, during their U.S. tour, they played a show in Kansas City, and they dusted it off and played it there, and I guess it just, people went bananas. It went over uh, went over a chart. I'll bet. Yeah. So, so they pulled that off. Um, now, just to, before we flip it over and get to side two, we've talked about, uh, you know, around the edges of some people who've influenced you, but it, and maybe you can't even do this, but... Uh, would would Ronnie Hawkins be your biggest single influence, or would it be maybe some of the guys in the band, or Dylan, or the Beatles? Uh, tell me. You could keep listing, and they all would be. Ronnie certainly is as much as Beatles are, as much as Chuck Berry is, as much as Frank Sinatra is, as much as uh, Notorious B.I.G. is. You know, it's um, there's so many. Yeah. All the guys that you really listen to. Uh, if you really listen to them a lot, it means you love them and, and that becomes a, a part of you. And I know we just rambled on and did not really answer your question of who the main influence is, but it could be Ronnie, it could be Beatles. A mixture of, of all of it, really. That's where, that's where individual style comes from, I think. 
just collecting all these different influences over the years and interpreting them your own way. Uh, yeah, that no, that is uh, that's true enough. Pretty tough to single out one particular artist when there have been and are so many great ones. So uh, we're going to jump into side two in just a moment, but I would like to just take a moment here to ask a favor of you here. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider making a small donation? or maybe a big donation, a huge donation, <laughs> to support the production costs of this podcast. Uh, it's a labor of love for me, uh, but I don't make any money on it, and it's great if you can donate something to help offset the costs of doing this. All you have to do is head to the website, romicast.com, and click on the Support the Walrus button, and I'll give you a shout-out in the next episode if you were so kind as to donate something. Like a couple of bucks an episode, it's more than you spend at a coffee. If you can help out, much appreciated. You can also navigate at the website uh, to the page Hire Paul, and I'm throwing this out there to artists. Have you ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release or tour or book or art exhibition? If you have, I'm your guy, an experienced podcast producer who loves the arts and will work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent. If you are interested, you can get in touch via the website and we'll take it from there. Also at the website, you can find each and every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series. The best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. So let's get to side two of Beatles for Sales. And we start off with one of the first pop songs to feature a fade up to start the track eight days a week. Guess you know it's true Hope you need my love, babe Just like I need you Hold me, love me Hold me, love me Ain't got nothing but love, babe Eight days a week uh, I mean, this is about it. It's a classic as you can go. I mean, this is instantly... Instantly a hit tune, like you know it right from that intro. It's another one that uh, I think on the anthology shows them working this tune out a bunch. And they, yeah. they haven't quite got that intro yet, but the intro that they eventually landed on is kind of very iconic. Is the right one. Yeah. And definitely the right one. Yeah. And I think, um, especially after uh, the Hard Day's Night album into Beatles for Sale, it seems like at this point they could just write a number one hit whenever they wanted to just at will. They knew what people wanted to hear. They knew what a good melody was and they knew what would sell, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mark Lewison, Beatles historian, describes the song's development in the complete Beatles recording sessions. He says this, Take one was played straight, no frills on acoustic guitar. On take two, John and Paul introduce a succession of beautifully harmonized oohs climbing up yeah. the mm -hmm. scale to precede the first guitar strum. Uh, and then they, that eventually got dropped. But you're right, Ryan. You can hear that on the anthology where the song starts with them harmonizing like that. Ooh. 
another neat thing is just to apropos of nothing, but while they were doing it on the session tapes, Lennon is is fiddling around in his guitar, and what he's fiddling with is the riff to "I Feel Fine." which they worked uh, okay. on later in the session. But I just want to get back to the harmonizing. Um, yeah. so, so they drop that tight harmony, you know, the ooh, very Beatlesque. You get a bit of that, you know, that great Beatle harmony on I'm a Loser, Parts Of, or From the Same Era, If I Fell, or This Boy. Now, yes. y- you guys have some of that going on on the track Listen on your new record, mm -hmm. or I Thought So, or I Don't Know Why. Uh, That's a little more rocky, that track, but still, you know, the cold vocal start, it kind of reminds me of something from uh, from the Help album. Uh, You know, Another Girl or any of those cold vocal starts. When did you realize that your voices mesh together as nicely as they do? Did you just stumble on it, or has it always been there? Tell me the story. Well, I think we've been doing that since... You know, I was three and he was born. You know what I mean? So maybe at first they didn't, uh, maybe that's something that's developed, but it developed all through. We've always done that. We've always sang together. So it's just natural. Great. It it naturally happens. Yeah. And like Ryan's voice is higher than mine register wise. So not all the time. Sometimes, well, for the most part, I'll take the take the low and he'll take the high. And, you know, just trying to find ways to, to tweak that and create two-part harmony that isn't just, you know, two parts together. You know, creating some con- contrast and different harmonic approaches. Definitely on listen. Uh, it seemed like one of the ones that, that would suit doing that, like doing a two-part thing all the way through. For me, just sticking to those two parts is just, you know, more primal and just sounds more powerful to me. Yeah, it, it really depends on the song and what the song calls for, I think. And a tune like Listen calls for that. Like this album, actually, Beatles for Sale, most of it is is the two part. They don't have, uh, they're not doing as much of the, the classic three part. Not sure if that was a conscious decision or up, or maybe it's just what the song's called for. You At this I mean? point in the album, there has been no three-part, nothing yet. Stark contrast to with the Beatles or even Hard Day's Night too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just I don't certainly. There's no Harrison and no reply. Yeah, don't uh, think so. I don't think I'm a loser. I don't think so. You're right. It's it's just uh, now. It, here's I'm I'm sure and you know, I haven't listened to every song in your catalog, but I'm. Are there times when, you know, Ryan or Sam, where it's more suitable to double up your own vocal, so, you know, sing with yourself, so to speak, for, for those right. of you who aren't familiar with, or is it always going to be a nicer sound with the two of you harmonizing? I think um, two. it really depends on what you're going for. Two different voices will give you, you know, just a different color in the palette. At the same time, if you double your own vocal, that'll just give you a different quality. 
it really depends on on what you're going for. Yeah, and uh, the double tracking of vocals is it's more of a fine art than than you would think. Like to be able to sing in tune with yourself is harder than it than it sounds. I think, or to phrase the same two times in a row. But yeah, like that will give a song a certain color. Uh, a different voice gives the song another color. Like the Beatles did it too. Like on things we said today, I think McCartney does his own harmony on that. So he, I guess that one suited it more. Like it's mm -hmm. not, it's not something Lennon couldn't have done or George couldn't have done, but for whatever reason they went that way. So I guess maybe that's what the tune called for. It sounds good. So yeah, it's hard to say why those, why those decisions are made, but it's, it makes a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, next cut, the only Buddy Holly cover that the Beatles ever committed to wax, uh, Words of Love. It was the last song recorded during that October the 18th marathon session. Hold me close and tell me how you feel. Tell me love is real. Awesome song, yeah. So I'm like, Buddy Holly. He's man, it's so many great tunes. Every tune, I can't think of a bad Buddy Holly tune. But this one, especially, has always like just grabbed me. Yeah. And this version gives this version is beautiful too. I don't know if this is like it's always had for me, like uh, shades of early psychedelia before it's there. Like it's a lot more. Um, I don't know if that, that comes through to you. It's a bit more psychedelic than the Buddy Holly version. Sure. And like maybe yeah. pointing that way to sort of that, I don't know, more colorful uh, thing that was coming later on in the 60s, which the Beatles kind of started in a way. Maybe this was kind of a stepping stone toward that. Right. Uh, it's also, it's got a bit of like an Indian quality to it too. The droney. The droniness. On the, on yeah. the intro. The space in there with the, the vocal harmony choices. Yeah. Maybe that's why George loved that lick so much. Right. Well, I was thinking about that too. I remember reading somewhere that George, once he got the the guitar solo to Words of Love down, that was like a big, big proud moment for him. It's like breaking through a barrier. And that was one of his go-to solos. Like I guess when his son expressed interest in learning guitar years and years later, the first thing George taught him was the solo to Words of Love. Ah, that is a great bit of trivia there. Yeah. I like that. Uh, huge Buddy Holly fans, the Beatles, although this is the only one they recorded on their stage act back in their early days. They'd play That'll Be the Day, Peggy Sue, Every Day It's So Easy, Maybe Baby, Think It Over, Raining in My Heart, Crying, Waiting, Hoping, all those, yeah. all those great songs. And, of course, as... Uh, I don't know if it, irony is the correct word, but uh, Paul McCartney in 1976 bought the publishing rights to the entire Buddy Holly, Buddy Holly catalog. Ah. So that he owns those publishing rights. MPL Communications owns, if, if you want to put a Buddy Holly song uh, in a movie, uh, you're talking to Paul McCartney about it. <laughs> wow. Send yeah. him a check. <laughs> well, I'd say, they're, I'd say they're in good hands then. Yeah. So we go from one cover version to uh, another song that, uh, well, it's, uh, it's a cover version as well. Honey Don't. Honey, 
when you won't Say you do, baby, when you don't Let me know, honey, how you feel Tell the truth, how is love real? But I'm hung Well, honey, don't Yes. Um, there's versions of, I guess in the earlier days, this used to be a, a John Lennon vocal piece. But there's something about when Ringo sings, not just this song, but any song, you know, just the, the vibe is so friendly and jovial. Like it, it sounds like the kind of guy that would be cool to hang out with. A lot like Ringo. you, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Uh, except for the songwriting ability. That's it. Uh, it was a John Lennon song. Uh, and right. Ringo says this. Uh, we all knew Honey Don't. It was one of those songs that every band in Liverpool played. I used to love country music and country rock. I had my own show with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes when I would do five or six numbers. So singing and performing wasn't new to me. It was a case of finding vehicles for me with the Beatles. That's why we did it on Beatles for Sale. It was comfortable and I was finally getting one track on a record. My featured right. little spot. Yeah. Um, awesome. First I think track, he does a great job of it. He, he sure. does. Uh, it, it's a, I mean, where do you guys rate Ringo as both uh, a singer and as a drummer? Uh, that's a, a, a that's a debate that you get into with musicians, Ringo's drumming. Great drummer a, or not great drummer? As a drummer, he's the best. Top of the mountain. He's Absolutely. top of the mountain. He is. I mean, you can't have these, like, all these songs are, all the Beatles songs are so classic. The drums are a big part of that. And his signature is bold. You know what I mean? Like his you his drumming is bold. Right. And it stands out. Like he's a he's as artistic a drummer as I can think of. You know, like it's he plays what's right. He plays what moves you. He plays what suits the tune. And so creative. Like and you can hear that even even on the earliest stuff on that BBC, like I've always been blown away by his drum parts. And sometimes I really focus in on those. Um, and I feel like there was a conscious choice he made at a certain point. Cause in the, in the live with BBC stuff, you can hear him playing and he has fast, he's got speed. You know what I mean? Like um, I'm going to sit right down and cry over you. Uh, mm -hmm. The Elvis tune, like the Beatles version, like his, that's like a drum feature in his intro. It's like flying. I think Very he made flashy. A, he yeah. made a conscious choice to be like, all right, I'm going to simplify my thing and do and play these fills that are just going to stick in your mind to do my parts. that's going to stick in a song. Maybe it's just what the song called for. But uh, short answer to the question is, you know, like I don't think there's better. I don't think yeah. there's a better drummer than him. Like the whole notion that he's not a great drummer. I never could identify with that thought. I just don't understand it. You know, he just plays the perfect part, the perfect speed. The pocket is always right there. And I guess, I think George said the first time we ever played with Ringo, he was filling in for Pete Best at some gig somewhere. And as soon as they started playing, it was like, now we're really rocking. You know, this was the fourth piece that, you know, created the magic, that created the whole that became the Beatles style. And it's just, yeah. Now, is that style so well known amongst people in your world that you could turn to your drummer, a guy, you Marcus Brown and say, Marcus, I need a little Ringo on this track. And he'd know immediately what you were doing. Oh, definitely. And I think all drummers 
uh, if they've done any kind of study at all, have that, at right. least some of that. And that's what I mean. Like, if, if he was a shitty drummer, uh, every drummer wouldn't know what you're talking about as soon as you say it. You know right. what I mean? Like, his imprint is there. Like, it's foundational in everything that came after. Everything that came after Beatles had Beatles um, influence in it whether they knew it or not. And that, of course, includes the drums. It includes everything. Uh, so, you know, when you get into, like, better, what's better, who's a better drummer? Like, I mean, they're just different. When you're at a certain plane, it's just different. That's all. Like, Neil Peart, of course, is an amazing drummer as well. Like, you name amazing mm -hmm. drummers. But they're different, you know, and they're playing what suits the song. Yeah. It's, it's about character, and his drums have, his drumming has such a character, and I would also say that of his singing. Yes. So next track in the album, coming out of that Ringo track, uh, is a song written mostly by Paul McCartney, but speaking of singing, the lead is sung by John Lennon. I'm talking about every little thing. When I'm walking beside her, people tell me I'm lucky. Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy I remember the first time I was lonely without her Can't stop thinking about her now Every little thing she does She does for me, yeah Another and one of my favorite Beatles songs Top five, definitely don't know why, but it's just, to me, it's brilliant. Everything about it, the, the composition, the melody of it, it just, it works for me. Like, so so dramatic in arrangement. Just incredible. Like in the, let's see. In the chorus, just what the harmonies do. Um, McCartney's up here. Right, and then McCart or Lennon's down here. The choice to go to those low notes. She does for yeah. me. So Ooh. the choice to go low there makes it sound like this. That's just what's called a power chord. That's a fifth interval. You know, the more obvious choice would have been the thirds. which is nice, but too pretty. Just the choice to use that, you know, to put more space between the harmony parts, it just opens it up. And that space, you know, just makes it that much bigger. That's just, that's a powerful moment to me. And then also in the chorus, the big ba-bum, the timpani drum. Yeah, yeah. Like how dramatic can you, can you get? That's huge. Mm -hmm. Ringo on the timpani, uh, first appearance in a Beatles song. Uh, McCartney says this, Every little thing, like most of the stuff I did, was my attempt at the next single. I remember playing it for Brian Epstein backstage somewhere. He had assembled a few people, and it was one of those meetings, oh, we have to do some recordings, who's got what? And we played it a few times. Uh, we didn't often check things with him. In fact, I remember it in connection with this because I thought it was very catchy. I played it amongst a few songs. It was 
something I thought was quite good, but it became an album filler rather than the great almighty single. It just didn't have what was required, I guess. Wow. Well, it did, but maybe it's just about uh, what gets pushed and which what what, el- what other tunes they have at right that moment, you know, that just seem to, for whatever reason, do it more. Mm-hmm. Interesting, though, that you know, mostly written by McCartney, but he handed the lead over to John Lennon for the sing mm-hmm. for the singing. Um, I guess yeah. uh, I guess maybe his voice fit it. Yeah, I, I kind of find that a general rule on this album. It's a little more uh, Lennon's voice is more forward than McCartney or Harrison. Even when they're singing unison, it's like, it's more leaning on Lennon's range than McCartney's to me in certain songs. This one being, being one of them. Uh, next cut, we go f- uh, to uh, a very Lennon song and uh, hearkening back to some of the early songs that were introspective. Uh, some would say, I've seen it written, that this was sort of a preview of You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. And it is mm-hmm. I Don't Want to Spoil the Party. So I'll go I would hate my disappointment to show There's nothing for me here So I will disappear If she turns up while I'm gone Please let me know I've had a drink or uh, Back to Ringo This is a, just a total Ringo drum feel And you can hear similar things later on in, uh, in Help or from what goes on from Rubber Soul, where his right hand is doing like swung eighth notes, which is a, if you can hear that, like a bumblebee. We call it bumblebee. Yeah. (laughs) To keep that going for an entire song and not to falter, that's just... And to keep it steady, yeah. And he was great at that. You hear that beat on some Buck Owens stuff. Right. And I know he's a huge fan of the Buck Owens, but... Yeah, it's definitely that's a classic Ringo feel. I don't. Yeah, but great tune. This one, I you could picture Elvis doing this tune. You know what I mean? It kind of has that. Harkens back to that a little bit, but definitely, yeah, this kind of does, as you were mentioning, recall the beginning of this album and those first couple of like real introspective. Tunes, you know, it's like sounds like a real happy tune, and it is in feel. But uh, he's sort of singing about some some real stuff, you know. I guess that he was feeling at sure. the time, wanting it, it, to disappear. It's it's funny that you you mention you know Ringo's work. Uh, the, the, the song was originally uh, written with Ringo in mind. Um, ah. McCartney says Ringo had a great style and a great delivery. He had a lot of fans, so we like to write something for him on each album. I don't want to spoil the party. Is quite a nice little song, co-written by John and I. Uh, it sounds more like John than me, so I'd say eighty twenty to him. Sitting down and doing a job. Certain songs were inspirational, and certain songs were work. It didn't mean they were any less fun to write. It was just a craft, and this was a job to order. Really, uh, Ringo does an excellent job on it. I guess talking about his his uh, drumming yeah. as well, but it was originally written for him to sing, according to McCartney. Oh wow, I could picture that. That's I could, interesting. I could picture that. Yeah, um, but and, John did a good job too. That's, that's he, for he, sure. And, and lovely harmony. 
I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. I would hate my disappointment to show. There's nothing for me here, so I will disappear. If she turns up while I'm gone, please let me know. The first presence of backing vocals, ooze, are in this one, finally. You know, in right. previous albums, those were all over the place. But this is kind of the first backing vocals there are, with the exception of uh, the Kansas City shout chorus in the background. Yeah. So just the fact that they waited until this late in the album to to bring that element in is, you know, it's strange cool. and cool. cool. Yeah. You wonder if that was a conscious thing they were trying to change things up or if just, again, it was like what the songs called for. Right. You know. And then the next track, second last track on the album, uh, What You're Doing. And what jumps out on me is that the song begins with a drum intro. Look what you're doing. More of a production piece to me. It's like not uh, as simple an arrangement as previous songs on the album. You had the the drum intro, and then later on they were they reprised that the drum intro. Plus, there's that bubbling piano and the the sort of melodic twelve string guitar part that just keeps going. It's kind of it's a more complex arrangement, maybe kind of foreshadowing for what was to come in later albums. We did that. We used to do this. We did this one with a horn section. The horn line did the the guitar part with the horn section. It's good version. Yeah, we should do it again. Uh, and and you would appreciate this as songwriters, I think. Uh, but uh, McCartney does a rhyme scheme by combining a single two-syllable word with two one-syllable words. So, look what you're doing. I'm feeling blue and lonely. You got me running, and there's no fun in it. Ah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Running running and funning. Running and funning. That's pretty pretty good. Use that same technique on uh, She's a Woman. Uh, which was also okay, recorded yeah. during uh, during these sessions. Heavily syncopated, uh, yeah. the, the song is. Um, and uh, generally thought, not that McCartney didn't write introspective songs, but I think we mostly associate Lennon with that, but uh, generally believed to concern his relationship with Jane Asher. Right, right. Is, is what he thinks. As I'm sense. looking through you a little bit later on would, would be. Yes. But this is a great track, I I mean, they're all great tracks, but this one has always been like a that drum intro grabs you right away, you know, in a different way than uh, John's voice does in No Reply, but this one grabs you right off the bat, you know, that's what you want a song to do. And, and how about, uh, I wonder if the birds heard this and got some ideas because you have that sort of chiming 12 string uh, yeah. in this, and uh, that was, you know, about six months before they became famous for Mr. Tambourine Man. That's very insightful. You know, I can hear that now that you say that. I could kind of hear that. Yeah. It's got a bit of that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What is the intro for Tambourine Man? 
that they do. Yeah, you can hear that. Yeah, very similar. It is. Yeah, very similar. Very, if you have a 12-string handy, feel free to pick up and demonstrate it. <laughs> uh, it's inside. <laughs> I messed up. Uh, you didn't bring your 12-string? You didn't bring your 12-string for this. Love, love the sound of a 12-string. Oh, yeah, man. Man. It's, I know there well, Another notable thing about this one is... Uh, sorry to cut you off. Uh, one of the first, to my knowledge, like... Uh, we were talking about lead bass moments in the Beatles catalog. The second drum break, and then McCartney goes up, boom, 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 like the first moment like that where he took this as a a bass moment as opposed to a drum moment or a guitar moment, and a lot more of that would would happen in the in the future. All I was going to say about the twelve string was I I know they're a bugger to keep in tune apparently. Good story. Uh, we got to do a couple of songs with uh, Gordon Lightfoot, oh, recording with him. One of my heroes. Yeah, and the best. What was that one? They're they're talking to him about. Uh, wow, must have been such a crazy time living through the '60s and like being around in the '60s and so much was going on. And Lightfoot said something like, "Oh, I I didn't I didn't get too much of that. I was too busy tuning my 12 string." <laughs> Uh, last track on the album, and uh, they they ring out with a cover, uh, a pretty good one. Carl Perkins, the second Carl Perkins cover on the album. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up, and they called it me. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. First time we hear from George singing lead, and it's great. Something about him doing the Carl Perkins stuff. Again, it works. It works for his voice. You can hear the respect he has for Carl Perkins, and it just comes across with that energy, that magic right away. Oh, yeah, like Perkins is, uh, man, he, he's awesome, and he was very close friends with Ronnie, so we got to hear a lot of Carl Perkins stories uh, first person. Um, but you know how much George loved him because there's that period where uh, all the Beatles changed their names uh, before they sort of really hit it big. They went on a tour and they changed their names. Well, stage John, names. Yeah, yeah, stage names. John Lennon kept his the same. Paul made his Paul Ramon. And George changed his to Carl Harrison. <laughs> so that's cool. how much he loved. So good. He loved Perkins. You know what I mean? And there is something about when the Beatles do it, but it's particularly when George does it, you can feel like how much Carl's music like really speaks to him. You know what I mean? And Perkins music is really special. Like where, I don't know. I was, I had this thought in mind and thinking about this is like where Elvis kind of Elvis had the rock and leaned on the rock. Carl sort of leaned on the roll, maybe a little bit more, a little bit of that, the swing, the roll to it. Yeah, absolutely. And a well-used melody to this song, uh, it shows up in Rock Around the Clock, uh, and Hank Williams used it for Move It On Over and Mind Your okay, Own Business. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, so like a, a classic, a classic. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking on Carl, you had that the story about... Um, yeah. Well, there's um, Blue Suede Shoes. I was reading about this, or I had heard it in a Carl Perkins interview from a couple years ago. But uh, there's a point in 
the early to mid sixties when Carl Perkins was just in a really dark place, like wondering if he should even be part of this world. He was having a hard time taking care of his family. He was no longer famous, didn't feel relevant, all this, you know, that goes back to 56 when he had a bad car crash on the way to the Perry Como show, which would have been his first big nationally televised show. And he was going to debut his new song, Blue Suede Shoes. Right. But it never happened because they crashed. His brother, who was part of his band, Jay Perkins, later died from this crash. Mm. So, you know, that just, it sort of stayed with Carl Perkins. And, you know, he dealt with a lot of addiction and stuff after that. But yeah, so by the, by 65 or so, he just had lost his way, completely lost his way. But lo and behold, one day he goes out and checks his mailbox and there's a sizable royalty check in there from a group called the Beatles. And he was just blown away by it. Didn't see this coming at all. And he didn't really know much about the Beatles, but his, his kid sure did. They were like, yeah, dad, this is the, the biggest band in the world. And they love you. They love your music. They're playing your tunes. They do tons of your tunes. Yeah. So this, you know, financially helped him out for the remainder of his life. But also that whole, you know, not feeling relevant and feeling forgotten in music just went away. He remembered that, you know, people did love him and respect him. And he, you know, just remembered all he had done for for music. So maybe in some, yeah, maybe in a cosmic way, his association with the Beatles saved his life I pulled him out and yeah it certainly light, changed brought him back life. to the light that is a great so cool. that is a great story yeah. that's it and after that carl perkins was close friends with all the beatles oh it, it, very much in their orbit right i mean harrison played at the carl perkins tribute uh, cool. carl perkins is on um is on uh, a track on uh, tug of war with mccarthy yep. yeah a great song uh, yeah i love it yeah. so much yeah no. um get it yeah. You gotta get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You gotta get it. You it just in case it doesn't boom, come boom, around boom. again. You gotta get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Are you familiar with uh, what's that called? My old friend. It's yes. Carl Have you seen that movie? With uh, it's just backstage shot of Paul McCartney on acoustic guitar and Carl Perkins on electric, and they're just talking and singing songs together. Man, how good is that? Well, just, here here's the story, uh, and I only know this because I did one of these podcasts with um, uh, Stephen Page. Did uh, Tug of War was his album, <clears throat> so I was doing research. Nice choice. For it. So that song that he does with Carl Perkins, uh, the whole the story about him being there, and that's the song you guys are talking about, which didn't end up on Tug of War. I right. guess. Perkins and, and McCartney are talking and uh, McCartney sort of gets up and leaves and he's he's uh, he's crying. He's 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 very emotional about it. And so Linda and Perkins are there. And as the story goes, Linda McCartney says to him, so how did you know? And he said, know what? He said, those were the last words John Lennon said to Paul McCartney. They were in the hall at the Dakota. And Lennon said, think of me now and again, old friend. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. That's yeah. the cosmic. That That's is, very cosmic. That is a wild yeah. one. And I know that um, Carl Perkins very much believed in spirituality and like the cosmos having real power. That's a big part of who he was. And, you know, I the think his, his whole association with 
with McCartney and Ringo and George and John. It was, you know, he attributed that to to a higher power, mm-hmm. and he, you know, really respected it as such. So if I just tell you a bit about the cover art, uh, and then yeah. uh, let you guys get on with your day, but. Uh, so the cover photo taken by Robert Freeman right near the Albert Memorial in Hyde Park. It's right across from Royal Albert Hall. Uh, he also shot photos used on the cover of With the Beatles, that the iconic, you know, faces in the half shadow photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the cover shoot for A Hard Day's Night, Help, and Rubber Soul. Um, he designed a photo collage that was supposed to be the cover for Revolver, but then it got rejected in favor of the Klaus Vorman, you know, now iconic caricature yes. cover. Album was in a gatefold sleeve. That was the first for the Beatles. And on the inside of the gatefold, you had a photo of the Beatles in front of a photo montage wall at Twickenham Film Studios. And there's also a shot of them performing. Uh, that photo was from a show they did on February the 11th, 1964 in Washington. Now, I want to ask you about your cover art. Just looking through what I could see, uh, you have Patches, which looks like a quilt. Uh, Mm -hmm. The new one, Choose Your Mm -hmm. Own Adventure, has kind of a riverboat gambler thing going to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your 2012 compilation, very cute. There's a little girl on a picnic table, looks as though she has (laughs) ear protection on, listening to the guys playing. (laughs) Um, left, right, left, right is a favorite, uh, an attractive woman wearing army boots, um, at lost and found very pink Floyd, Umaguma, where, uh, you sort of look yourselves in a, in a looking glass home, bare as bones. I love, uh, sort of an Mm -hmm. abstract painting. Now those are my favorites. What about yours? Do you, first of all, how much do you think about your cover art and what are your personal favorites from your, your stuff? I kind of like the ones that you mentioned, like they each have their own sort of identity. I always thought the left, right, left, right was, you know, just a, a cool piece of art by a great artist as well as Barrow's Bones, just, a, you know, its own thing. But you always want to have something that's sort of engaging. And as far as thinking about it, you know, I'll always come up with maybe a couple ideas that I think would be cool, but I think it's really important to, unless you're an accomplished artist like that, you know, to, to find someone who that's what they do and they have talent doing that and see what they come up with. I definitely think you, you, you think about it a lot for sure. And you want whatever the cover is to reflect what's inside or to be engaging and make people want to go inside and be like, Oh, that looks interesting. What's, what's underneath that? What does Mm -hmm. it sound like? So you really want every, I would think uh, you want every cover to to do that, to be eye grabbing and and inviting, in a way. So certainly we think about it a lot. But like as he's saying, um, it is, and I think maybe the Beatles did this too, and, and a lot of groups do this. Is where you get an artist that you like, and you're like, we'd like you to to do the cover if you're into it, and if they're into it, you let them go. You might give them a little. A, a little pointers of what you have in mind. Yeah. And sometimes they'll come back with something that's like that. Other times they'll come back with something very different. Like the new one, choose your own adventure. I know the idea that, that we gave to the guy who did the, that art, Sean Daniels was very different than what he did. And I'm very glad for that. Cause what he right. did like blew that idea that I had away, which was the initial idea was to just do it kind of like what we're doing now. And like take a screenshot of that because that's what we're all doing. Like we're, 
where uh and how we recorded the album like you're speaking through screen with somebody yeah, and like yeah. just show that way cooler what Sean did like that now that I think about it that would have been pretty lame well yeah we just uh trusted his, still a great idea his ability and instincts and you know he came up with something that I think fit the the theme of the album and the name of the album just in a much more refined way I guess but back to this album, Beatles for Sale, this cover is very striking. Uh, it's almost like what they call screw face. You know, like all, the, all the Beatles, they're not like smiling on that cover. They're all sort of like mugging a bit. And kind of what I was just saying there about uh, you want the cover to reflect what's inside. And as we've just gone through all these songs with you, and especially the, the opening ones, I think that that cover really does that that their faces on the cover look like uh, No Reply and they look like I'm a Loser. They sort of look like Babies in Black. They look like mm -hmm. the tunes inside. Dark and, and drab almost. A little bit moody. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, uh, the great liner notes from the great publicist who's no longer with us, but Derek Taylor. I love this part. Uh, None of us is getting any younger when, in a generation or so, a radioactive cigar-smoking child picnicking on Saturn asks you what the Beatle affair was all about. Did you actually know them? Don't try to explain at all about the long hair and the screams. Just play the child a few tracks from this album, and he'll probably understand what it was about. The kids of AD 2000 will draw from the music much in the same sense of well-being and warmth as we do today. He wrote that in 1964. Little wow. did he know. Eh? Wow. But he was right. Maybe he did know. Because, you know, it's still like, it doesn't matter. Anybody who hears the Beatles for the first time, I've been getting into some reaction videos on YouTube, which is people hearing Beatles for the first time. And it has that, you get to watch people's first time hearing like Here Comes the Sun or first time hearing Let It Be. And it moves them much like he's saying there, like in the same way. It is like timeless. Their, their music does transcend time. It's just, it's magic. It has that magic quality, and it's just yeah. It's got the love. They, yeah, they created what they created out of nothing. Is you know that's what blows people away. That's what blew me away, and still does. Still does. So full of love and spirit, you know. So guys, uh, what are your final sort of takeaway from we've been talking for the last hour and a half about this record and about the Beatles? Mm -hmm. What uh, what do you take away from our, our conversation? What are your final sort of thoughts and takeaways? Mostly that you're a cool guy, man. And this is fun. We should do it again. Very fun. Yeah. And uh, the Beatles, for me, it's quite a rabbit hole. Like when you get into them, like when I get into them, I really, you know, get obsessed for a while. I get obsessed. And then, you know, I'll sort of take it easy for a while from them, take a little break. But then every couple of years I come back and, you know, find myself in, in that Beatles obsession land, which is a great thing. And, you know, this has certainly sparked it again. Plus the latest McCartney album and the new McCartney documentary too. started watching that. So I'm back in that mindset and I, I thank you for it. You know, I, I look at Beatles albums as as albums, much like this was all about. You know, so picking favorite tracks, really, I don't know. Like, I just more look at like the whole 
album as a track. And this one is a very powerful one, as we said in the beginning, that sometimes gets a little, um, I would say overlooked, but maybe not looked at as, yeah. as much as it's not as others. celebrated, but it is a powerful point, um, within the Beatles sixties, uh, that holds as much power as, as any. And, um, it's great. And I appreciate, uh, the opportunity to talk about it with you. Yeah. It's been too long since I've listened to a Beatles album front to back, frankly. And just to do that again, that takes me back to, you know, why I started loving them when I was a young kid. And, you know, the feeling is younger still, kid. The feeling is still very much the same. Guys, thank you so much for the generosity of your time. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you, Paul, man. So what do you think about Beatles for Sale? What are your thoughts and our thoughts? I'd love to hear from you. I always do appreciate your comments. And you can leave a comment on the podcast episode page, which you'll find on my website, romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com, romicast.com. And you can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is at RomanuckPaul, at RomanuckPaul. There's also a Facebook page. Do a search for the Walrus was Paul podcast page and I do respond to pretty much every comment or observation that somebody makes so if you want to chip in uh, I'll probably get back to you so that does it for this episode you can explore all things Weber Brothers and purchase their music at their website WeberBrothers.com they are also on Twitter Facebook and Instagram, the Weber Brothers. You can stream their music on Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, and all fine music streaming services. Coming up on the next episode of The Walrus Was Paul, we will dig into the 1994 compilation, The Beatles Live at the BBC. Some great stuff there to dig into. And we'll be doing that with musician, songwriter, and producer, Alan Piggins. That is next time on The Walrus Was Paul. I'll talk to you then. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles?